0: Live from Los Angeles, this is Rabbi Eric Sherman and Rabbi on the Sidelines. We're excited to welcome you to the show, which speaks about the intersection of sports and faith. This morning, we are joined by Sinai Temple's own Ken Levine of the blog spot Hollywood and Levine, Emmy Award-winning producer and the writer for many of our favorite shows, Jefferson's, Cheers, MASH, Simpsons, and so much more, and a Major League Baseball announcer for the Seattle Mariners, Baltimore Orioles, Voice of Dodger Talk, and my own Syracuse Chiefs. Ken, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks very much. You should be one of the guest hosts on Jeopardy. You got this down. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm trying here. Better at announcing pages on a high holiday prayer book than Jeopardy uh, <laughs> Jeopardy hosting. It's so good to have you. And I just want to tell everybody the connections of Rabbi on the Sidelines, and how Ken Levine Ken Levine, sorry, is here with us this morning. Many weeks ago, we had the honor of hearing from Dave Sims, uh, the announcer play-by-play of the Seattle Mariners, and I got an email from you, Ken, that said that you were Dave Sims' co-play-by-play announcer for the Seattle Mariners, and then there was a little line that said, I also was the broadcaster for the Syracuse Chiefs in 1988. That, everybody, was my hometown growing up in the Syracuse Chiefs. I was a young boy then, and even better, another host, another uh, guest of our show, Dave Cohen, former voice of the New York Yankees, was your co-play-by-play with the Syracuse Chiefs, my little league coach, and we found out quickly that Ken Levine lived three doors down from the Shermans in Syracuse. So it's great to connect right here on Rabbi on the Sidelines at Sinai Temple. Good to have you. It's great to be
1: here. Uh, You need to clean up your lawn, by the way, because, you know, we would drive by it, I
0: remember, and, you know, a lot of your toys were just still out on the front lawn. Well, that was because it was, uh, let's see, April, it was probably still snowing then. Yeah, no, it snowed (laughs) in April,
1: and then it was a thousand degrees with thunderstorms (laughs) in May.
0: Exactly. When my wife experienced a Syracuse summer, Rabbi Guzik, she said, I don't get it. It was just sunny and now it's thundering. How do you, how do you predict this? You live in the elements in upstate New York. So I want to get to your journey because your journey seems to not make sense, right? You are a writer and a producer of some of TV's best shows. And then in this other world, a major league baseball announcer. So take us to when you were a child and you told me the story as we sat in my backyard during this pandemic of going to Dodger Stadium and taking that cassette recorder, what would you do up in the rafters there?
1: Well, when I was a kid growing up, I I always wanted to be a baseball announcer. You know how kids always want to be players, and then you kind of reach that age where you realize you're not good enough to become professional? For me, it was eight years old. But the Dodgers came to town, and I heard Vin Scully for the first time, and I thought, wow, this could be great. Cause you could be an announcer and you could still be part of the team and you could be there every day to see every game. And you could travel to exotic places like Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. <laughs> to me, I thought, This is a fantastic job. So I, I always wanted to be a, a baseball announcer in the back of my mind. And then, you know, you drift off into other professions and, uh, Fortunately for me, I drifted off into one that I was successful at, which was television writing. And I reached a point, I was in my mid-30s. It was 1985, and but I still, I'm only 55 now, but still, don't do the math. Um, I, uh, I had just finished creating and producing a series for Mary Tyler Moore, And I thought to myself, I've been on MASH, I've been on Cheers, I have an Emmy, um, I did a show for the Queen of Television. Uh, Is that all there is? And uh, I thought back to those days when I wanted to be a baseball announcer. And so I thought, you know, if I don't pursue it now, I never will. So I grabbed a cassette tape recorder and went to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium. I didn't want to sit in the good seats because I figure, you know, if somebody is paying $30 <laughs> to see a ball game, he doesn't want some idiot sitting next to him going, there's a line drive to deep left field. So I thought if I'm sitting way up in the uh, the top section where it's general admission and the seats aren't reserved, I thought, okay, if somebody is annoyed by me. They can just move over somewhere else. And I did this for about two years. I went to Dodger Stadium and Anaheim Stadium Mm -hmm. and just recorded game after game after game and got better and better to the point where uh, I said to my lovely sainted wife, Debbie, wouldn't it be fun to spend a bucolic summer somewhere in the United States And she said, like, you know, okay. And so I gave her a list of all of the minor league cities. There was, like, 120 of them. And I said, just check off the places that you would enjoy spending the summer, and those are the (laughs) only places that I will send my tape. And she checked off, like, 20. I was kind of hoping she'd check off, like, 60, but she checked off 20. So I said, okay. And I sent off tapes to those 20 teams, And I got three offers, including Syracuse. And Syracuse was the AAA affiliate, which is just the level right below the major leagues of the Toronto Blue Jays. And so I took that job. Now, my wife, uh, she was kind of misinformed, I guess, because (laughs) she she thought that Syracuse was going to be like the Berkshires.
0: It she'll talk to like, she'll talk to Rabbi Guzik after this of their experience. Yeah, lots geez, of misinformation. Uh,
1: <laughs> this is going to be just like Tanglewood, you know. And there's the Finger Lakes and everything, you know. And there's salt mines in Syracuse, <laughs> you know, like uh, like you were saying. the The weather is horrible in Syracuse, but um, I did that for a year, and then uh, got a chance to go to Tidewater which Mm -hmm. is the New York Mets AAA affiliate for two years. And that was an easier sell to my wife, Debbie, because I said, just think of San Diego with humidity.
0: Yes, yes.
1: But I mean, there was a beach and it was a resort area. And then there was an opening for the Baltimore Orioles. Mm -hmm. And I sent in my tape and amazingly got the job.
0: So let's go back to Syracuse for a moment because you said before this, you had an amazing career of writing television shows that we all have watched our entire life. But you have this little interview and clip right here that I'm going to show that really explains what it's like to do radio at the AAA level in the 80s. So let's take a look. Chiefs,
1: we were on a radio station that was truly a coffee pot. Your (laughs) Wi-Fi has a larger coverage area than our radio station. We were like 250 watts at 1490. And at night, it literally was so bad that when it cut power, the fans in the left side of the ballpark and the grandstands couldn't hear the station anymore. Okay, it, it cut out. If you're-
0: well, that was my family. We were definitely in the left field stands of good old <laughs> MacArthur Stadium. So what are the learning experiences? This is your first professional baseball job. Probably easier to be in the grandstands of Anaheim Stadium and Dodger Stadium than being in old MacArthur Stadium. What did you learn that you then took to the level of the Orioles and Mariners?
1: Well, the interesting thing is that you know, I would do the games from the stands and and it would be a lot of fun. But if I had a cold... I missed a day or if I was going to go to a a screening of a movie or something, I would miss a night. But when you're doing a full season of 144 games, you know, it was the first day of the season and I thought to myself something that I should have thought about earlier, I suppose. (laughs) But I thought to myself, what if I do this for two weeks and then hate it? (laughs) <laughs> and, and have 127 more games to go. But fortunately, I came to the end of the season, and I was depressed that it was over. Oh, and nice. that's how I knew that, that I was really hooked. And, yeah, there's certainly a grind to it, doing mm-hmm. it day after day. And, of course, the travel in the minors is not charter jets and four-star hotels, but uh it was it was also like like following a great saga you know mm-hmm. or a mm-hmm. soap opera and there's something special about following a team and being around the players each and every day as the season unfolded and i absolutely loved it
0: especially at the, the AAA a level. level i mean i've seen the, sorry i think sorry, there's an echo here. echo here one second you can hear that echo right a little bit uh sorry uh, um, at the AAA level, sorry, one second here. this, that's better. Um, at the A level, when these are up and comings, right? Half of those guys are never going to make a major league, le- a major league team. But I remember, for instance, in 1996, Carlos Delgado, Sean Green, Alex Gonzalez, right? They were playing right in front of my eyes. The bathrooms weren't even in the dugout; you had to go to right field to the locker room over there. Yeah. Um, Columbus Clippers. As a child, seeing um, Posada and Jeter and Mariana Rivera. Right. What is it like looking into their eyes, knowing that some of these guys are going to be literally Hall of Famers and calling those games as basically, you know, their introduction into the major into the major leagues?
1: Right. Well, most of those players were known as prospects.
0: Yes. And
1: we would follow those prospects and we would also promote them on the air because, like you said, uh, you know, it's a chance to see some future all stars before they they make it big. Uh, But the ones that really kind of tugged at my heart, if I'm being honest, are all of the players that came through there either on the rise or Mm -hmm. on the downside of their career. Mm -hmm. And you just knew that they were never going to see a day in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. And yet they were playing basically because baseball meant so much to them or the alternative was going back into the real world and you know working at UPS or mm-hmm. as one player said handing out sports equipment at a local park mm-hmm. uh, so those were the players that that I really I guess attached myself to and again at the time when I'm in the minor leagues I have no idea that I will ever go to the majors, but yes, uh, along the way there were some some great players who I saw coming up. I remember when uh, Deion Sanders mm-hmm. signed with the Yankees. He signed with the Yankees, and I also think he signed with uh, with Dallas Dallas Cowboys for football. But he started playing baseball with with the Yankees. And it was his very first professional game. And it's at old MacArthur stadium. Wow. And (laughs) Deion Sanders comes up to the plate and he takes his bat and he draws a dollar sign. (laughs) And that's
0: at,
1: at home plate. And I thought to myself, I like this guy. Okay. This guy is going somewhere. Yeah. You do, you do so see some characters along the way.
0: So let's go to the entertainment world for a moment, because you got to break A baseball. You basically send out your tape, text Simone, lovely man, lovely family calls yeah. you and said, okay, I'm going to do this. But on the other end, right, every young professional, and you grew up here in Los Angeles, but every young kid moves out to LA and say, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be the next, you know, sitcom writer, producer for these shows and win Emmys. But you actually did it. But the question is, how do you do it? So let's go to, uh, you get your your break, if you wish, for uh, the, uh, the Jeffersons, right? And we'll yeah. look at that story real quick. Okay. okay. One second. I'm
2: one. the story editor on the Jeffersons. His name was Gordon Mitchell, Whitey Mitchell. Oh, and, um, one second. There we go. Stories of, um, of, you know, breaks come to you from, from in ways that you never expected, that you could never prepare for, no matter how much networking you do. Um, Ken's mom was was a uh, was a golfer and uh, had a regular game with some friends of hers, and they were out playing. I think at Bryn Mawr in uh, in the valley, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, a fellow was going to play through. Uh, a, a guy was coming out to play nine before he went to his work. I suppose it was in the morning, and he want uh, he was going to play through as a single. And so he played a couple holes with them, and they struck up a conversation. Ken's mom and this fellow uh, struck up a conversation, and she asked him what he did. And he said, I'm, I'm the story editor on the Jeffersons. His name was Gordon Mitchell, Whitey Mitchell. And, um, and she said, you know, being a good mom, she said, my son's trying to be a comedy writer. And, he, he, and having treated him well, uh, he was very gracious and said, well, have him send me something. And we sent him a a Mary Tyler Moore spec we had written and uh, he brought us in and uh, we came in with some ideas. We were ready to go. And and we actually sold one.
0: Your mom's a golfer. Somebody passed us through. Said my son's a writer. Yep. Today you're you're here on Rabbi on the Sidelines. (laughs) Is that talent? Is it skill? Is it luck? What do you need to do what you were able to do in that world? I think you need three
1: things. You need talent, certainly. You need luck, which plays a big part in it. And I I think you need the drive. You need the hustle. you You need to really be passionate and work hard and put in the extra effort. And hopefully all three of those things come together to some degree. But when we started out... My partner and I, we both had daytime jobs and Mm -hmm. we said we are going to take two years and just keep writing script after script after script. And we figured over the course of two years, somebody somewhere is going to recognize a germ of ability here and and give us a break. We were extremely lucky. It happened within six months. We had still written three spec scripts we had written a pilot a spec Mary Tyler Moore show which got rejected by Mary Tyler Moore show staff we wrote a Rhoda episode that got rejected ironically the Rhoda was rejected by their showrunner Charlotte Brown who now lives three doors down from me <laughs> and we're friends but when i see her i'll oftentimes say Charlotte Read the script one more time. Just just nice. give it one more read. You know, I'm telling you, there's something there. There's <laughs> something there. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so that's the Jeffersons. And then one thing leads to another. And now all of a sudden, you do the sports thing. And let's talk about the Simpsons for a moment. Because okay. you bring some of that sports world knowledge. You mentioned International League. Dan Horde, who was your uh, co-play-by-play announcer in Syracuse. Right? First... Let's start with the entertainment to the sports world. What skills and talents that you had within writing and production did you bring to Syracuse and then Baltimore and Seattle and the Dodgers? I think a sense of
1: storytelling, Mm. you know, that I'm not just a a reporter who is basically just telling you ball one, ball two. Uh, I'm giving you an overall picture. I'm trying to, develop some suspense uh if there is a lull in the game or your team is down eight to one and it's the fourth inning it's like why would anyone still want to be listening (laughs) if you if you have stories if you're talking about all kinds of things uh and keep it interesting then you're going to hold on to an audience now i never played the game professionally so I don't have that to bring to the table. I'm not able to say, well, you know, when I was a shortstop for the Cardinals, we did this. All I can bring is my own personality, and uh, hopefully that's unique, and hopefully that's uh, something that will resonate with an audience.
0: So there's two different types of stories. In baseball, right, you find the stories, actually, it's funny. I remember watching that video of the Syracuse piece, and you said there was a guy who went like one for 67, just started making up a story about him and then gained traction. I forgot his name.
1: Yeah. But, I'll tell, let me tell that story because it's a great okay. story. Okay. <laughs> uh, as we mentioned, we had a terrible signal for our radio station and people would come up and complain. And so as a way of saving face, I used to say that, well, we're just the Uh, flagship station for the Worldwide Syracuse Chiefs Radio Network. (laughs) Now, the irony, of course, is with the Internet that they're online and you can hear them anywhere around the world. But you sure couldn't then. And I would pause for station identification during the broadcast. On the worldwide Syracuse Chiefs radio network, and I would talk about how we picked up another station in Bhutan. How the you know the emperor of Bhutan is a big fan of the uh, Syracuse Chiefs. And I would just you know make up all this Boba Misa, and we had a player named Norm Tanucci. He was a sweet kid from Connecticut, but he was in a terrible slump. He was going 0 for 4, 0 for 9, striking out three times the game. He just had a terrible time. But I made up this whole thing that he was uh, a national hero in Borneo, that his father during World War II had parachuted in behind enemy lines and helped save the country, and that the... uh, Currency is Tanucha's, and that ninety-nine percent of the male babies and ninety-seven percent of female babies were named Norm. So I would create this whole thing, and I even got him to record some things for me, saying hi. This is Norm Tanucci, you know, saying hi to all my friends in Borneo. It just was (laughs) kind of a way of talking about him without having to reiterate the fact that he was 0 for June. So one night we're in Oklahoma City and he gets a triple, his first at bat. And so when he comes up for a second at bat, I talk about it and how excited everybody in Borneo was (laughs) that Norm got this triple and the next pitch he just blasts into orbit and my call was there's a long drive to deep left field steve can't back to the track to the wall no school tomorrow in borneo (laughs) (laughs) so and uh, that that sort of became a signature and the uh the general manager of the, the Blue Jays, who later went on to the uh, Milwaukee Brewers, uh, every time I would see him for 15 years after, he was, you know, no school tomorrow in Borneo. It kind of became a, a famous minor league
0: call. So you literally create that story. Yeah. And now into the entertainment world, right? Let's take The Simpsons because also, by the way, a very established cartoonist, Right where you literally create characters, you create the city of goofball and it comes alive so that it's something that we just know in reality. So what is the difference in terms of the audience, right? You know that, yeah, I'm listening to a Syracuse chiefs game and getting that story, but how is it different to tell the story or to create the story for an audience that doesn't know that the story exists?
1: Well, in the case of The Simpsons, you're talking about an episode called Dance and Homer, which David Isaacs and I wrote, I think it was the second season, it was pretty early in the run. And the key to the story is it's not about baseball. It's about Homer. It's about the characters. And we try to load it up with as many kind of baseball-related Easter eggs, if I can say that on a Jewish broadcast. Of course. Uh, that, Universal audience here. Okay, that, that we could find. But also, uh, we wanted to make sure that even if you knew nothing about baseball, that mm-hmm. you would enjoy this episode, that it was uh, about the characters, and that the baseball was basically just uh, a bonus for, for fans who got it. And we had a lot of really inside jokes, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, we, uh, had names of uh, various people. Um, we didn't use Tex Simone, but we, we called him, uh, Tex Antoine something else, I think. <laughs> uh, but, uh, we, we tried to use names and w- we tried to like make fun of, That whole world. One thing that you know going to minor league baseball games is that the outfield walls are just filled with advertisements. And uh, so we had advertisements like Springfield Savings, Safe, 1895 to 1974, 1977, Current, you know, or um, Hit This Sign and Win a Free Coffin. Because there used to be these signs, get the sign and win a free suit. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) you know, for those who are paying real attention, uh, those were there. It's kind of like, remember the Mad Magazine articles where there would be all these other little jokes in the corner uh, if you were willing to to pay attention? Uh, That's kind of what we did with that episode of The Simpsons. And it's great Mm -hmm. that... Uh, Sam Simon, Jim Brooks, Matt Groening, uh, the, the producers of the show gave us that freedom and said, OK, go to town. So the sports world goes, sports goes into, goes into the, faith the faith world.
0: I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. I echo.
1: And of course, we also utilize the sports world a lot in in uh, Cheers. And David and I wrote Cheers for nine years and Sam Malone is a former Boston Red Sox pitcher, so we we dealt with sports uh, any number of times. We also wrote an episode with Kevin McHale of the Boston <laughs> Celtics, and That's... the premise of the episode was that the guys, you know, they always have that you know bar talk where they're talking about you know nonsense, and they got into a discussion of how many bolts there were in the parquet <laughs> floor at the boston gardens and that led to a whole episode and we actually went to the boston gardens it was really fun yeah
0: so there's sports there's entertainment but what about faith your faith as an identifiable jew did that ever come into either the sports world or when you're writing these sitcoms um you know use the word bubble myself right Um, whether it's words stories we are the people of the book we are people of stories how did that work in terms of the entertainment world? The Jefferson's you know, Cheers, MASH. I think, uh, well, MASH is a very Jewish show. I mean, it really is. A oh, defined Jewish show. That's interesting <laughs> that you say that.
1: Well, it's sort of the, the Jewish sensibilities, mm. I, I would say. One thing I think that Jewish writers bring is some of the core values of Judaism, you know, uh, the promotion of humanity, um, family, the importance of education, charity, uh, the sense of, of a, a greater good. And I think that those core values tend to get um, uh, reiterated and celebrated in in the type of shows that, that we write. Um, and I I think that's that's true for for all of the shows that we write, at least for some of the people that I know. And there's also of course the Jewish sense of humor. Mm -hmm. You know, books have been written Mm -hmm. on that as to it's a defense mechanism or it's a coping mechanism and all of those are true, and all of those are uh, factors. But I also think that uh, it's a way that that we Jews um, choose to appreciate life, mm-hmm. and choose to appreciate the absurdities of, mm-hmm. of life, to to recognize it, and to uh, to laugh at it, and we recognize the uh, the value to your soul, to your psyche, to everything of laughter. And so I think, um, humor has become, uh, a large part of, of our culture. And for me personally, uh, not being a good athlete, uh, it was a way to try to get girls <laughs> <laughs> to try to impress girls. Cause I was, I was at least funny. I couldn't throw a spiral, but I was at least funny. And, and I remember as a kid, as a teenager, watching the Dick Van Dyke show. And here was Rob Petrie, who was a comedy writer. And he was married to Laura Petrie, this beautiful woman. And he was a comedy writer. I thought, wait, you could get a, a beautiful woman like Laura Petrie without being a quarterback? <laughs> hey, I can do that, <laughs> you know? So uh, so humor led me in, in that direction.
0: So how do you know when something is funny or how do you know when it will be funny and how do you know when it's actually a success?
1: Uh, boy, it's so hard because it. here's how hard it is. I've had plays and other playwrights will tell you the exact same thing. One line will get a huge laugh one day and then it gets nothing the next. And Mm -hmm. a different line that the audience didn't respond to the first night suddenly gets a roar of laughter. You would think the short answer is, well, if people laugh, then you know it's funny. But, uh, (laughs) you know, sometimes it's like so strange where like an audience will suddenly laugh at something and I think to myself how is it that 125 strangers
0: mm-hmm.
1: all suddenly find this funny and the next night 125 other
0: strangers don't yeah I think we're I actually mean, gonna add the think, yeah we're gonna have okay, we're gonna add the
1: every night is gonna, gonna find have, it funny
0: we're going to add the applause sign for sermons now, actually, in the back of the sanctuary, because you know, this be is a funny piece. The congregation must laugh, right? <laughs> but it's the same that'd thing, right? When you prepare be right. a sermon, right? Yeah. Is this line going to go over? Not in sometimes humor, but sometimes in terms of the point that we are making. It's fascinating because right. when somebody comes to a rabbi, you'll have one person say, that was the best sermon I ever heard. And the same sermon, that was the worst sermon I ever heard. That, I believe, actually is a successful sermon because it's not a one-size-fits-all. And I imagine it's the same in terms of writing uh, shows as well.
1: Right. And you know what? I think you're able to deliver a message better with humor because people are more open and receptive if it is delivered through humor. And that's certainly what we tried to do with MASH because MASH was a very issue-oriented show. I mean, we were not at all uh, discreet about our uh, dislike of war and uh, our hatred of guns, uh, but it was all done through humor.
0: So that's actually my next question. Sports, humor in sitcoms and TV. What are the role of both of those in our society today? Right. Sitcoms were in, a, you know, more of a world of reality TV where you don't necessarily see the matches and cheers and Jeffersons or, you know, I have my own TV station right here. Right. I don't have to wait. The NBC calls me. Obviously, it's a different audience, but we're creating our own content. What was the role during those times within a larger society and also in the sports world? What did you see as the role of those storytelling within outside of the sports world?
1: Well, one thing about television back back in the Pleistocene era when I was in it Mm -hmm. was that it really was much more of a shared event. I mean, you look Mm -hmm. at the last episode of MASH that was seen by like 121 million people. The last episode of Cheers was seen by 84 million people. And, you know, we used to talk about water cooler shows that people would watch a show on Thursday night, and they'd go to work on Friday morning, and they would be yeah. standing around the water cooler discussing, Oh, did you see that show last night? Right. Well, now people are watching shows on a million different platforms. There's all these options. People are binge watching, they're time shifting. So there's very little of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think sports still provides and it's one of the reasons why I think the NFL is so successful on television is because it's one of the last shared events, hmm. you know, that if, if you want to find out what's going to happen on the Ram game on Sunday, you're going to watch the Ram game live at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. You're right. not going to just tape it and watch it. At your convenience Thursday morning sometime, so uh, I think sports uh, allows us to still have a shared event, and they are now so few and far apart. I mean you think about the the Oscars and the Oscars used to be such a huge event. I mean next to the Super Bowl, the Oscars would draw massive audiences. And this year, less than 10 million people watch the Oscars. More people watch the NFL draft mm-hmm. <laughs> than watch the Oscars. More people watch Jeopardy than watch the Oscars. And, uh, you know, to me, we're re- really as a society losing something, uh, losing that basically shared You know, experience. I mean, you probably remember as a kid, certainly my generation did, the importance of radio and Mm -hmm. how we all got our music by listening to the radio. And Mm -hmm. we had radio stations that were our favorites and disc jockeys who were our favorites. And here in Los Angeles, you could go to the beach in the summer on a Sunday afternoon. And it was almost as if there was a, a PA playing mm-hmm. uh, a radio station, you know, that that everybody was listening to KHJ at the same time. And now kids get their music through TikTok, through Spotify, different ways. You don't have that shared event again. And I actually
0: think so. That's what Judaism, I think, provides. And I think that's what we're excited for this Absolutely. holidays coming up. Right. The right. one, thing, the one, we one missed, thing we missed sorry no was that it's shared, that shared experience. experience. Empty sanctuaries that people are watching replays of Shabbat services. Right. Right. No. And actually last year, with high holidays, as you know, synagogues around the country and world said, you know, we're going to pre-record our services here. Thankfully at Sinai said, no, we are going to do a live event because people will wherever right. they are, are going to have that shared experience. And that's right. why I know we're very excited to have the God willing in-person physical Shared experience because it goes to the humor, right? When we were saying jokes and sermons online, what is the audience responding there? When you 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 have that, you don't hear the laughs.
1: Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. exactly. So, yeah, there's a
1: sense of community when everyone gets together. You know, part of the experience is seeing people Mm -hmm. and talking to them and catching up with them and seeing their daughters growing up and and that type of thing, you know, that as you sit in your seat and you see the people around you and everyone grows up through the years. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So we are honored that Ken Levine has joined us here on Rabbi on the Sidelines. You literally have allowed us as a country to grow up on your humor, on your stories, on your play-by-plays uh, within Dodgers and Orioles and Mariners, and for me personally in my my own childhood in Syracuse Chiefs. It's <laughs> literally speaking to a, a legend, and most importantly, we are just thrilled that you are part of our community, and I am honored to be part of your community here at Sinai Temple. Ken well, Levine, I, it is money. a pleasure to have you. If you have not checked out Hollywood and Levine, please check my out broadcast. the podcast.
2: The podcast,
0: the blog, questions of the week. You can find out about the Mount Rushmore of uh, broadcasting, what needs to change in baseball and entertainment today. Um, Emmy award-winning producer and writer, as you said, though, most importantly, just a wonderful human being, a mensch. Ken, it's so great to have you here. And as we say back in Syracuse, let's go Chiefs. (laughs) Okay, let's go Chiefs.
1: (laughs)